0: If you want uh, help in suffering and you're looking for something to read, besides the Bible, there's a lot of good literature and material that happened and was written a generation ago or maybe two generations ago. And the reason for that is that we live in the midst of a culture that has a lot of fixes, a lot of solutions for a lot of our problems. For instance, this morning I woke up and had a headache, and so what did I do? I took some medicine to try and take care of that. And not that medicines or solutions to our problems aren't good and helpful. Those are certainly a a measure of God's grace to us. But my point is that we live in the midst of an environment where we're not used to having no solutions, no answers, no uh, quick fix to our problems and our scenarios that we deal with. And so often it is helpful to get a generation back or two generations to people who understood that there are less fixes than what we may even realize, and who had to learn how to be able to rest on God's sovereignty in the midst of difficult scenarios and painful questions. Two examples, a man and a woman, both on the death of their spouse. The first one, George Mueller, known for his great faith, his ministry with orphans, and uh, at the end of his wife's life, was able to preach at her funeral. I just can't imagine. And at her funeral, he preached from Psalm 119, verse 68, the text that says, Thou art good and doeth good. And his outline was this. God was good and did good, one, in giving her to me, two, in so long leaving her to me, and three, in taking her from me. We don't talk like that. And then at at her funeral, he said this, I miss her in numberless ways and shall miss her yet more and more. But as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow. I am satisfied with the will of my heavenly father. I seek by perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him. Notice this, I kiss continually the hand that has thus afflicted me. People don't talk like that today. Example two, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, Sarah Edwards. He died at age 54 after 31 years of marriage, and sometime after the funeral, she wrote to her daughter about her father and Sarah's husband. She said this, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, Oh, that we could get that into our vocabulary. A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hand on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. You see it? You see, there's something beautiful that both George Mueller and Sarah Edwards knew, and that is that God is sovereign over all things. That may not be a familiar term for some of you. Let me explain it. It means that God is in control of absolutely everything, that he reigns as king, as ruler, that as creator, he has the right to do anything that he wants because he is creator God. And that means that all events... Everything that's happened, everything that's happened in your life is all underneath the umbrella of God's ability to control it, even the hard things. It means that no matter how difficult or how many questions or how uncertain life seems, that God is never out of control. He's always ruling. He's always sovereign. That's what that word means. It means that His sovereignty requires that those who know and understand him rest in his ability to be God and their ability simply to be people. And what Sarah Edwards and George Mueller understood is that God's sovereignty and his control over all events can become the eclipsing answer to the why question in suffering. Remember the why question is the question that we're often prone to ask when hard things come. We begin to say, why did this happen? Why did this take place? What's the purpose behind it? And I've argued from the beginning of this book all the way to the end that the who question is far more satisfying than the why question. And today what we're going to see is the way in which this wonderful who question, meaning who God is in all of His glory, all of His splendor, all of His might, can actually eclipse the why question. And I use the word eclipse on purpose. It is because... When we're in the middle of pain, suffering, and difficulty, it's not as though just understanding something from the Bible makes the pain go away. It's not as though just understanding what the Bible says somehow the pain stops or or somehow the loss isn't any less real. It's still there. There's still an empty place at the table. There's still a nagging feeling within your heart. There's still a, a deep sense of pain. But here's the difference. That when the who question gets right, and it begins to eclipse the why question, it is that something greater, more lovely, more attractive, more profoundly majestic, and more beautiful than all of the pain that you feel, eclipses the pain. So it's like this thing, who, comes over, and it overshadows the why. Overshadows the pain. And what we see in the life of Job is that Job now experiences face-to-face his creator God. He experiences the who in a whole new way. And what we're going to find is that the who eclipses the why. That the who of who God is gives us the ultimate answer as to what is the point of this book and why is this here for our benefit. The aim for this entire series has been very simply, I've said it over and over, to plead with you, to beg You to to ask you, to invite you to see that the solution to suffering is not the answer to that why question that you want to know. It is rather the answer to the who question, which is God. In other words, God's sovereignty and His control is far more glorious, beautiful, attractive, and valuable than an easy life. And if you understand that and cherish it, you will understand the key to suffering and really the core message of what the Bible is all about in terms of the majesty and glory of God. Chapters 38 to 42 record the moment when God finally breaks the silence. Job has asked God over and over to answer him, and finally God shows up and answers him. And what we're going to see is that after Job encounters God, he has a very different perspective on life, a very different perspective on himself. And I hope that today may be a day for you when you gain a different perspective of your life your heart, and maybe even the circumstances that are in your life today. So we begin by seeing that God speaks. Remember last week, Job thirty-one thirty-five. Job had a piece of paper. He put his signature at the bottom and said, Here is my signature. Let the Almighty God answer me. As though he had a, a verdict, a blank sheet of paper. It's said, Just go ahead and fill in the blanks, God. Tell me what I've done. Lay out your charges. Well, God showed up and answered him. And I got to wonder if Job wanted to say, Oh, do-over. Can we do that over? Let's, let's try that again. Let's not do this. Just, just kidding. No, it's too late. God is here. Apparently in Job 37, there was a storm that was approaching when Elihu was speaking to him, and that storm became a whirlwind. A whirlwind, which is a violent storm like a hurricane. How many of you have ever been in a hurricane? How many of you have been in a tornado? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you, like me on Tuesday or Wednesday night, whatever it was, laid in bed and thought, my goodness, my house is not supposed to creak like this, right? It's, it's noises that are... Is that okay to hear that sound up in the attic and, you know, waiting and thinking, wow... You know, what's happening here? So, th- this is not some gentle breeze in the cool of the day. A couple commentaries that I read, or one in particular, said that this interaction between God and Job was more like a, a walk in the park, or a conversation that went something like this. So, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? And I, I read that, and thought, yeah, that's not what I'm reading here. There's no way it's like that. This is a whirlwind. This is like a, a thunderstorm with enormous winds and power, 70, 80, 90, 100 mile an hour winds, and from the center of this whirlwind, God And I don't think he says, who is this who darkens? I think he says something like this, who is this that darkens counsel? I think it's just an authoritative, powerful statement by a majestic God. And from this whirlwind, God speaks. Job has asked to have the answers to his charge be given. And now God is going to question him. To darken counsel by words without knowledge means that you have made statements about things you don't understand. It means you've talked ahead of what you really could ever know. It it means that you drew incorrect conclusions or arrogant uh, assumptions about what you think is going on. And this is what Job has done. He has all sorts of pain in his life, remember, that wasn't caused because of his own sin, but this suffering had produced and surfaced from him some weaknesses, not the least of which were his own bitterness, his own pride what happens is that in the midst of suffering, Job's fears began to cloud his assessment of what God was like or what God was doing. And I want you just to remember that, that fear of suffering and fear in suffering can cloud our ability to assess what God is really doing. And oftentimes we end up making incorrect conclusions, and and Job certainly did that. In fact, his heart at this point seems to be full of, of bitterness and pride. And that is why God uses rhetorical questions. It's interesting here, isn't it? He begins to ask him some questions. Why do you think he does that? What is God's posture towards Job? I don't think that he's angry, but he does use rhetorical questions to display this massive power. And he does so in order to break through Job's bitterness and his pride. Here's something about bitterness and pride. It is that those those two sins are very self-deceiving, aren't they? I mean, bitter people, when they're bitter, often say, I'm not bitter. And you like, yes, you are. You're bitter. No, I'm not bitter. And the more you say it, the more bitter they become, right? So I'm not bitter. And then how about pride? I don't know about you, but it's pretty hard to see pride when I'm in it. Maybe a week, two weeks, a month, six months, a year, five years down the road, I can look back and go, you know what? That season of my life, I think I was kind of full of pride. And the reason when we're in the middle of pride that we can't see pride is because we're what? Proud, right? You can't see it because you don't think you have a problem. That's your problem. You don't know that you have a problem. So pride and bitterness are hard because there's a level of self-deception. And what, what rhetorical questions do is they shock the system. You begin answering, oh, no, I, I can't do that. No, I can't do this. And they, they, they shock the system of the heart. For instance, um, in seminary, there was a, a colleague of mine who... Um, He had a paper that was returned to him by a seminary professor that we had. His name was Dr. Carl Hoke, and he was a German professor, and he had kind of a snarly voice. He talked like this. That's how he talked. So he would lecture on 1 Peter, and you guys with your Greek lexicons, get them out. I mean, he was just a very intimidating guy. And uh, so he, uh, he's, he he was going through these, uh, the subject of New Testament theology, and my friend had turned it into paper, and then he saw that the guy sitting next to him also got his paper back, and he got an A, but he got a B, right? So my friend got a B, and the guy sitting next to him got an A. He said, can I see your paper? So he grabbed his paper, looked at it and he thought, man, his papers are almost identical I mean, he almost made the same kind of arguments and yet I got a B and he got an A let's kind of surface some anger inside of him so he, he went up to the uh, professor Carl Hoke, of all people and he said to him, Dr. Hoke, I got a B on my paper he said, yes you did and he said, well, then he, gra- then he did this he grabbed the paper of his colleague he said, well, you gave this guy an A yes I did and he said, well, I don't think his paper is any better than mine And to that, Carl Hoke said, I see. So you think you're an A student, do you? Rhetorical question, right? Answer, yes, I do. And then he said, well, consider yourself an A student who got a B. (laughs) (laughs) So rhetorical questions have an ability to shock the system, right? Shock the system. And that's what God's going to do here to Job. He's going to shock him into the realization of how far he's allowed his heart to go. What happened is that Job's suffering began to reveal his pride, and so God is mercifully going to answer him. He's not under no obligation to answer Job. He doesn't have to answer any of these charges. He does so because he's gracious. And he, he's going to answer these questions in such a way to accomplish two purposes. One, he's going to bring Job back from his self-sufficient destruction. See, there's there's a problem within the human heart. It's called self-sufficiency and pride. It's thinking that we're in control or we're the master of our own destiny. destiny. We pull ourselves by our own bootstraps. We can do it, we can do it, we can do it. And there will be millions of people in hell who thought they could do it. And God is going to pull Job back from his self-sufficient heart. But the second thing he's going to do is he's going to finally answer Satan's charge. Remember what it was in chapter 1? It was this. If you take away the stuff, he'll curse you which really wasn't so much about Job, it was about God. The question was this, are you so worthy, or rather put out how Satan said, you are not so worthy to be loved absent of your gifts. Meaning, your worth, your majesty isn't worth anything unless you give people things. Take away the stuff you give and your people will not worship. And to that God said, let's see. And that's how Job began. The test is, Will Job still worship his creator when all the gifts are removed? Round 1, chapter 38, verse 4, begins with a series of questions about nature. And essentially what God is going to show Job here is that, first, God rules the world by wisdom and compassion. And secondly, he rules it by his power, knowing and controlling every part of the universe. So he's going to tell Job two things. Number one, I rule wisely, Job. And number two, I have power to rule. I am a majestic and glorious God, and God's going to use creation to show that to him. Notice, first of all, how he uses the beginning of the world, the creation of the world, to make this case. Chapter 38, verse 4. He asks Job where he was at the beginning of the earth, which is really a funny question. And can you imagine Job's response? We're not given it here, but you can imagine. He was like, uh, uh, "Not, no, not there. Look at verse 4 of chapter 38. Where Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, this is verse 12, and caused the dawn to know its place? I mean, look at what God says to Job. He says, were you there, Job, when I created the earth? Have you said to the morning, rise, and the morning dawns? Can you command the sun and the sea, and can you make things, Job? Were you there? And the answer, of course, is, no, I wasn't. Notice now verse 16. He not only talks about the creation of the world, but also the boundaries of the universe. He inquires about Job's knowledge regarding the outer recesses of the created world. He says in verse 16, Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? What's he saying here? He's saying, Job, there's, ceas- there's parts of the world, parts of the created order that you don't even know exist. Do you know the source of the sea? Do you know how to bring... Um, The sea out of that spring. Have you ever walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you ever plumbed the depths, Job, of the gates of death? Do you know where these things are, Job? And the answer, of course, is, no, I don't. Next, he talks about the control of nature. God presses Job, his ability to meet the needs of the earth. Can you bring rain, he says? Look at verse 25. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? And away for the thunderbolt. The idea, Job, do you make a path for rain to be poured down? Do you decide where it's rained on and where it isn't? Verse 26, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert where there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass. And then he uses clouds and lightning to press his case. Look at verse 34. He said, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? I mean, God says, can you go, clouds, rain, and it starts raining? Of course, Job can't. And then I love this. God gets a little playful here. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? I love that. <laughs> God says, can you take lightning bolts and go, strike here? Lightning bolts go, sure, here we are, zap. Can you do that? No, you can't do that. Can you send a lightning bolt here and there, Job? And the, the point of the lightning bolt is this, that in the Old Testament, there are gods that were created in people's minds that reflected the natural order of the earth and the world such that there's a sun god and, and lightning. There was a god that was associated with lightning and rain. And, and God says, I rule over that, Job. And can you command lightning bolts, go here and go here and zap this and zap that? See that house? Zap it. Bam! Can you do that, Job? No. You can't. Because why? You're not God. And then he talks about his ability to provide for the animals. Look at verse 39. This is a beautiful list. Those of you who are kids in the auditorium this morning, you need to, this list is great. It's like for you, this list is here. Like lions are there. Ravens and bears, oh my. Right There's all sorts of mountain goats and oxen. and It's like you go to the Indy Zoo and when you go there, take this passage with you and sit in a park bench and just read the fact that God displays his majesty in animals. Crazy looking animals. Look what he does. Uh, verse 39, lions and ravens are given food by God. Uh, verse, uh, th- uh, chapter 39, verse 1, mountain goats give birth by God's command. It's like God points to the top of the mountains. See that little goat up there, Job? Watch this. Birth, and bloop, a little goat pops out. He's like, look at that. I did that. That's me. Can you do that, Job? No, a goat can't do that. Wild donkeys are set free. Wild oxen are subdued. And then this, I love this. This is crazy. In the middle of this passage, about these great animals, there's an ostrich listed here. And then the ostrich is described in verses 13 through 18, and the foolish things that she does. It's just like uh, completely out of sorts. He, he describes that the, the the ostrich. You you, you know, just get an ostrich in your head. Okay, get it, get it in your head. This big body with these huge feathers, right, and this little pencil neck and this tiny little head, and these really big feet, right? I mean, get this thing in your head. Okay, you got it? And the Bible says God made that ostrich that way just because God wanted it to be like that. The text says it has wings, but it can't fly. Okay, so it runs, and it flaps its wings, and then it says that it puts its, its, its eggs in the dirt where they can be stepped on, and it deals with her young cruelly. So the, the picture is of this crazy bird that's, that's just silly looking and frankly rather stupid. And the Bible says God made it that way. So that means that there are creatures on the earth that God made them just for his delight in how they look. So you can go to the zoo and just look at an ostrich and go, my goodness. It just shows the creativity of God. He, he actually made the bird to look funny. Which is really explains why some of you look the way you do. We're just so grateful for that. He saw that he saw you, and he's like, no, no hair, no thanks. No, see that head? You're gonna go just like that. There you go. You ever looked in the mirror like, how come my head looks like this and yours is like that? Why? Because God did that. He made you like that. How come my hands are so big and feet so big and why God did that? He says to Job, I, there are creatures in the world that I made just because I wanted to make them that way. I mean, think of it. You go to an aquarium and you see a shark swimming around with a with a one's got a, a, a I say a beak, but it's not right. But a but a bill on the what other thing is called the front? You got a hammerhead, right? There's this hammer thing or the platypus with this big old flappy thing on the front. I mean, it's a screen You just walk around and don't look at those creatures and go, "Huh, it's interesting." Look at those creatures and go, "Wow, God did that!" And you know, there's little creatures in the deep parts of the sea that we've never not even seen yet, and God knows that they're there and made them for His own glory. And the point of this is that Job, you've not done any of this. So God enters Job's world into this this natural order of things that Job can see and feel and touch and know about. And he uses these as exhibits, A, B, C, D, E, and F. And then he even goes further. He talks about the horse and the horse and its might and the hawk and its ability to soar. I love watching hawks. In our house in Michigan, we used to have them around us all the time, and they'd be soaring, and they could just, just turn their wings, just gently in that breeze, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they'd kind of freeze in the sky, and zoom, like a ball of lightning go down and grab a big old snake out of the grass. Like, wow! That's incredible! And God was the one who gave them that ability. And so what God does is He uses nature to reveal Job's impotence. Every question is the stark difference between God and Job. God created the world. Job wasn't even there. God knows the boundaries of the universe. Job doesn't even know where to look. God controls every element of nature, and Job is absolutely powerless. And so God uses creation to tell Job what he is like, and what Job is like. Now, after this blistering display, God asks Job a penetrating question. Job might have hoped that that would be enough, but God wasn't finished. Verse 1, chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? About this time, I think Job knows, uh uh-oh, God just called me a fault finder. He who argues with God, let him answer it. Let him answer it. Meaning, Job... Your suffering has created within your heart a fault-finding spirit. And you're contending with me, Job, by your repetitive asking for answers and answers and answers. And by your assumptions about me, you've now become a contender. Which is why God says to Job, dress for action like a man. You know what that means? In, in basketball, it means a triple threat position. All right, Get on your stance and let's go. In, in Job's life, it meant taking his outer garments and tucking him in because he was going to get ready to tango with God. It also means maybe in street world, (laughs) all right, Job, either put up or what? Yeah, Yeah, you said it. Okay, very good. (laughs) Come on, Job, it's time. Dress for action like a man. Lay your cards on the table. Let's see what you've got. The problem is that this is a really important charge against Job. His suffering has caused him to be a fault finder, a contender an arguer with God, that may describe where you're at today. Something bad happened in your life, and ever since then, you've looked at God through a lens of, why did you do this to me? Explain yourself to me. How does this fit into your plans? And all maybe it's come out of your mouth, maybe it's just been in your heart, but for years you lived in this little private world with animosity towards God. And the reality is, you've become a contender. And, and you, like Job, have the... Tr- choice that we all have to make today. And it's this, either we trust that God wisely u- rules the universe, that he knows what he's doing, even though we can't always see how it all is going to work out. Or we continue to complain, contend against God, and in effect exalt ourselves above God. So the choice is either submit Rest and trust or complain, contend, and exalt yourself above God. Because here's what happens when you contend with God about his purposes and his ways. You, in effect, say to him, if I were God, I wouldn't do things this way. And that's what Job says. And the challenge in the midst of suffering is to be sure that while we're in pain and in the difficulties that God has placed us in, that our hearts don't go into this category of, well, if I was God, I would. Because that's dangerous territory. Job's answer in verse 4 reveals that God's majesty has begun to woo his heart. He says this, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand upon my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Maybe Job hoped that would be it, but it wasn't. Because then God continues in verse 7. Dress for action like a man, I will question you. And you will make it known to me. Then he says this, Will you put me in wrong Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Verse 10, he says this to Job. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then God says this in verse 14, hear it then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. See it? What Job is suggesting is that because he thinks he knows better than God that his right hand can save him. And God says, do you have an arm like me, Job? If so, if you've got an arm like me, then we'll acknowledge that your own hand can save you. But the reality is Job knows. There's no way he can do it. Job's sense of self-sufficiency and pride are being surfaced in new ways. Not only through his suffering, but also through God's rebuke. So then we enter into round two. Where now it's not just about nature, now it's about power. And God talks about power for a very specific reason. See, Job considers himself to be innocent, and he's charged God with being unjust. Unjust. Understand what's happening here. You've got a mortal man, a created being, the one whose heart beats, whose lungs fill with air, at the command of the creator. And he got this little, tiny, weenie-bitty, little immortal, this little mortal man saying to the immortal, invisible, all-powerful, supreme creator of the universe, you don't know how to run your universe very well. If I were in charge, here's what I would do. And the reality is the stunning contrast between Job and God is unbelievable. And Job has made a serious charge, and now he needs to back it up. And to make his point, God identifies two mammoth beasts. The first is behemoth, and the second is leviathan. And in effect, God says, if you can control behemoth and leviathan, then let's have a conversation. Okay? If you can subdue them and their creatures, then we can have a talk about how I'm not ruling the earth. What's the behemoth and the leviathan? Well, the behemoth, we're really not sure about either. It's just conjecture. The behemoth may have been a hippopotamus, which that in and of itself is both a funny name and a funny animal. Isn't it looking the way that it is? The behemoth and the leviathan may have been some sort of massive sea creature some sort of, um, of, of great creature that was feared by the people. It could also have been, some suggest, a crocodile, but I don't think a crocodile is big enough for what, what, what God has in mind here. And what he says to Job is this. If you can subdue those two creatures, then we have the basis of being able to talk about my wrongs, Job, and how you think I ought to govern the universe. Then look at chapter 40, verse 15. Here's what he says. Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins, his power in the muscles of his belly. And then he says this to Job, verse 24. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Hmm. So the idea is this. Job, can you walk up to a hippopotamus or some other huge beast and say, come here, you, and grab him by the eyes? I don't think so. Reminds me of when I was a kid fishing with my my dad. We used to... uh, well, every once in a while, we'd go fishing for pike. And, you know, pike have very sharp teeth in the inside. I remember my dad showing me. He would pull it up by the, um, by the line, and there would be this pike on the end. In order to get that pike off the line, we actually squeeze it in the eyes, which apparently paralyzed it, and then you could, like, lift the pike up in the boat. And, I mean, it was like a lot of power when you are a kid. You know, like, squeezing it in the eyes. You're holding that thing up, and, and there's, like, strength there. Look at me! Look at me! Right? That, if that fish fell off my fingers, you know, you're like, run away! Run away! Right, right, so But you're holding it with the eyes, and there's a sense of power. And that's what God says to Job. Look, can you go up to the hippopotamus and go, Come here, you, and grab it by the eyes? Or grab it by the nose, or put a snare in its mouth and bring it to you? And then he turns his attention to Leviathan. Look at um, chapter 41 and verse 1. He says this, Can you draw out Leviathan with a, a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will you speak or he speaks soft words to you? Will he make a covenant with you or take him for your servant forever? Now, now listen to this next verse. This is hilarious. Verse 5. This is a Leviathan, and God says this to Job. Will you play with him as a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? <laughs> I mean that's God's almost trash talking here, isn't he? Huh? You're gonna put him on a leash and bring him home. Hey, little honey, look what I got for you. He's a Leviathan for you, honey. I leashed it, right? So, you know, Valentine's Day, I, I went to the store to get some things for my wife, and our daughter saw a little teddy bear. She's like, Daddy, want that? Because I was like, oh, yeah, you bet. So I got that, and here it is, this little lion. So I'm bringing her a little lion, right? And Job says, can you leash up a Leviathan and bring that to your girl? Here, here's your new pet. It's called Leviathan. Don't get too close. He might rip your head off. I mean, what is he going to say, right? <laughs> you, you can't control this animal, Job. Are you going to bring it home for your girls? Answer, No. God's point is this, if Job can't subdue the great creatures of the earth, then what business does he have accusing God? If he can't control Behemoth or Leviathan, if he doesn't have that kind of ability, then how does he have the right to press his case that God doesn't know what he's doing? Instead, the call of these two beasts, in effect, to Job, is learn to trust that God is in control. And with that, God closes his case. And then... Job responds. Look at chapter 42 and verse 1. There are two things that come from Job. After hearing all of this about ostriches and lions and donkeys and ravens and hawks and behemoths and leviathan, the two things now that come out of Job, it's beautiful, are worship and humility. Those ought to be two words that you are right next to Job 42 worship and humility because at the end of the day that's really what all suffering is designed to produce worship and humility, and, and the battle, when, when suffering comes, is for us to run and embrace worship and humility. To say, I, I'm not in charge of my life, I'm, I'm just a mere man, I don't understand what's going but I know that you do and I choose to worship you. Or as we've said throughout this series, I choose to bless your name. I choose to say, you're God and I am not. You're in control, I'm not. You're sovereign, I'm a mere mortal. Look at chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then, verse 3, Job uses the same um, question that God used, but he uses it now towards himself. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job answers, verse 3b, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Verse 4, he uses the same question again. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Then verse 5, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See what happens? He's humbled and he's worshiping. There's four statements here, I hope that will be helpful. Job says them, and I hope that when suffering comes across your path, that you will be able to say these as well. The first one is found in verse 2, and it is this, You can do all things. In other words, Job confesses his encounter with the sovereignty of God. He's seen it from lions and mountain goats and wild donkeys, that God is all-powerful, and that no purpose of His could be thwarted. And what happens here is that Job comes face-to-face with the eclipsing power of who God is. He understands in a fresh and new way. He's seen it displayed throughout the created world that God reigns and rules supreme. And at the end of the day, Job says, you can do all things. He agrees that God is sovereign and in control. And what happens here is he chooses to bank his heart on who God is instead of why is all of this happening. And the who eclipses the why. And the only way that that happens for Job and for anyone in suffering is they come to understand and love the sovereign control of God of their lives. They love it. It means that they know they're not in control. They know that life is not all about them. They know that even though they can't see all of the things that are happening in life, they know that there's a sovereign, good, loving, all-powerful God who's orchestrating it all together. And even though you can't see all the itty-bitty parts, you trust and rest that He knows what He's doing. You see, this is a liberate could be a liberating thought for, for some of you today that you would decide that God is worthy to be trusted, even though it doesn't make sense to you. That even though there's dozen, you don't see how the plan fits yet, that you can rest under that and say things like, I don't know how this is going to work out, this is hard, this is painful, but I know that you never do anything that is not for my good. And to be able to respond to hardship like that, to be able to agree with the psalmist, to oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Some of you today may need to pray, Lord, would you give me different taste buds in my spiritual mouth that I could taste and see that you're good. To be able to have the faith and belief to say, Lord, I don't know, but I trust. I mean, that's what happened when you came to Christ. It was that 2,000 years ago, some guy named Jesus, who claimed to be God and man, died on a cross. And the message of the Bible is that God took all of his wrath and all the payment for sin and poured it all out on Christ. And that by you, by believing in that cross and placing your trust in that, could say, Lord, take his death and count it for my own. That's trust. That, that's how you're, how you're born again, that's how you receive forgiveness for your sin, that's how you become a Christian, is placing your trust in that. And then everything after that, including suffering, is simply a continual life of trust. That you say, if I can trust you for that, I can certainly trust you for cancer, or multiple sclerosis, or the sins in my spouse, or the difficulties in the, in the hearts of my kids... I can trust you. I don't see how it's all going to work out, but I know what you've told me, and I believe, I put my faith in that. That's, that's what it means to follow Jesus. So you place your faith in Him at once, and then you keep placing your faith in Him all the time. And sometimes it's day by day by day by day. It means that some mornings, for some of you, it's a challenge that you even get out of bed. And literally, you have to take your feet out of your covers Put your feet on the ground and say, Lord, by faith, I believe today that you have good intentions for my heart and life, even though I can't see how I'm going to make it. And some of you know what it's like to live day by day, step by step, underneath this wonderful umbrella of you can't do all things, I can't do it without you. And I want to encourage you that that's where you're at today, that God's put you in a hard season where that's where you're living. You are experiencing the beauty and the joy of daily painful grace, the kind of grace that comes to those who really can't make it every day without His grace. But I got news for you none of us can make it every day without His grace. And what suffering does is just makes you realize how much you needed His grace. And that's why, friends, it is a gift. Number two. Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand. Verse 3, he says, I, I said things that I didn't understand. Here's what happened. Job, Job thought he understood the world, but suffering shattered the categories of his life. He said things that didn't fit with what was really going on, and then, there's a danger that we all could do this. Maybe you found yourself saying things like, I see no reason for this. Something like, there's no good that can come from this. Maybe you've said, this just is plain not fair. Or maybe you've said, I can't handle this. I can't. I can't do this. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and your dream was to have a bunch of kids and you realize... These kids are as wicked as their dad. That's what the problem is. And you're like, how did I get stuck with four replicas of my sinful husband? They're all hanging around. Let him come home and deal with them, right? Tell me you've had those thoughts. You, I can't do this. Or a husband. You call home. How's it going today, honey? And you're like, ooh, rats. Wrong question. You find out how hard. And you're like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't, I can't do this. Or you went to school for four years, got your degree, got your first job, and you're like, this is not what I wanted to have and do in my, with my life. Or you found out that there's something called layoffs and job loss. Maybe you started your own business, things were going right, great three years ago, and all of a sudden now, it's week by week, and you're just like, I can't do this. And maybe instead of saying, Lord, I can't do this, it's been, I can't do this. Like, how dare you? And yet there's texts like First 1 Corinthians 10.13 that say no trial has overtaken you, but such as is common in man. God is faithful, will not let you be tried more than what you can bear. And with the temptation or the trial will give you the way of escape that you can be able to bear it. And there's truth there that you have to believe. Or maybe worse, you've thought, God, you're just plain cruel. You see, one lesson that we have to take away from this book is the fact that there is a story behind the story of Job's life. Remember that? There's a plot line that's going on. There's another story happening that's behind the story, and Job doesn't see it. And I've got news for you. The Bible also tells us that there's a story behind your story. In fact, you know what it is. Romans 8 says, All things work together for good to them who love God, to make them more like His Son, to be conformed to the image of Christ. So everything that's happening in life from the job loss, to the cancer, to the wheelchair, to difficult kids. All of it helps to form and frame us into Christ-likeness. And the faster we get to the place where we say, I can't do this, please help me. Instead of saying, I can't do this, leave me alone. And the faster we get to a humble heart, the more grace is ready to be poured out upon us. You may not see how it all works out right now. And you may not ever see how it's going to work out. Until you see him face to face, and then you see the beauty of who Christ is, and all of it makes sense, and then what happens for all eternity? We bow our knees and say, behold the Lamb. William Cowper put it this way, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy. And shall break in blessings on your head. You see what he's saying? He's saying that you need to view the coming clouds of suffering differently. Some of you have come through a hardship, a hard season of your life, and the minute anything difficult comes, you're like, look at your spouse, like, mm hmm, here it comes again, just watch. And you got a glass half empty mentality. You're looking for the next shoe to drop. And Cowper suggests, why not instead see those coming clouds as being ripe, pregnant with mercy? Instead of running from them, looking at those clouds and saying, there's mercy in there, I just can't see it today. There's mercy here somewhere, I just need to find it. I long for dads in the midst of the storms of difficulties in your marriage and your home, difficulties at work, for you to be able to take your family and say, we don't know how and we don't know where it is, but there's mercy in this thing, kids. We just have to wait till God shows us. Third he says this, And now my eye sees you. Verse 5. You see, suffering had brought Job face to face with an encounter with God and clarity for Job did not come with the answer to the why question. That answer never came. Instead, it came by understanding what God is like. He said, I heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. That's what's happened for some of you. You've gone through suffering, through difficulty, and you understand God in a new way that you would have never known before. Or maybe you're here today, and suffering is what brought you to church. You're so hurting, you're so, you're so downcast that you're like, I don't know what else to do, let's just go to church. That's a great decision. And maybe the reason why all that hardship is coming to your life is because God today wants to open your ears to the reality of the gospel and He wants you to use a job loss, a relationship breakup, the, 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 the dissolving of your family in order to tell you you got bigger needs in your heart than what you see. It is the reality of what it means to have your sins forgiven in the person and work of Christ. And it could be that today your ears are open and your eyes are seeing, and God is wonderfully wooing you to Himself, calling you to receive Christ could be also that God uses suffering to help you understand the reality of how much more clearly you can see him now. Some of you might say, well, if I had an encounter with God like Job, if God would just speak to me, it would be a lot easier. So if you get an invitation for that meeting with God, don't invite me. You can just handle that one on your own. Because this experience with Job was not real exciting. In fact, I think that Job, if he could respond to that statement, would say this. Do you realize how much more you have in the word of God and the person of Christ than I had? You realize, don't you, Couch Park, that you have the full disclosure of God to man. You have everything you need to know. You understand the purpose behind the purpose behind the purpose that Job never even understood. You understand the work of of the cross of Christ and how that fits into the the whole concept of suffering. And I want you to realize that we should not short-circuit the amazing power of the Scriptures, the presence of the Spirit, and a personal relationship with Christ to help us understand how it is that we can see what God is like. You see, it may be that suffering in your life has revealed how little you really understand what God is like. And what happens is that suffering came, and it hit, and you were completely unprepared. You didn't know what to think about God. You didn't know what to think about life. You didn't know what to think about His divine purposes. And so your heart just ran where it would naturally go to. This isn't fair. This isn't fair. This isn't fair. And those statements coming out of your mouth are simply a realization. Now, that you don't really know what God is like. And suffering has gloriously revealed to you that your image of God is far too small. And that by expanding the heart to what the Bible says about God, you can actually eclipse the pain of suffering. But you have to know God through His Word. So it could be that God, by His Spirit, is using suffering to show you that you still have a long way to go. Wouldn't that be gracious of Him? And that is why Job ends with this statement, I repent. Here's the conclusion to the man. Job humbles himself. doesn't mean that he's repenting from sin that created the original calamity, but it means he's changing his mind. He's changing his disposition towards God. And that's what I have prayed today would happen with some of you. That you would literally today would be a change of disposition between you and God. That there would be this movement from, instead of being angry and frustrated, that you would simply be humbled and say, I don't know what you're doing, but I choose to trust. Instead of saying things like, why is this happening to me? Instead, you would say, Lord, I trust that you know what you're doing instead of being a person who's filled with animosity and bitterness, that you'd literally change your mind and say, God, I choose to trust that you have my best in your heart. What Job does is he commits his life into the hands of a gracious God, knowing that he can bear any fate as long as God's in control. So there's one last question. And it's really important. It's this one. So why didn't God tell Job the whole story? Everyone did that. So he went through all this stuff about lions and ostriches. Talking about ostriches. He didn't tell him the real story. Why? It's very important. The reason is that if God had told him about the story behind the story, it would have not addressed the ultimate question, which is this. Is God so worthy... And so glorious and so majestic that he can be worshipped absent from what he gives. And even absent from answers. Satan's charge was, your people won't love you if you, take, if you don't give them the gifts. And implicit in their charge is, if you don't make sense to them, your worth won't eclipse all their questions and they will curse you. And so what God amazingly and brilliantly does is rather than giving Job the answer, the story behind the story about this conversation between God and Satan, instead God gives him something more satisfying, more beautiful, and more attractive to Job than the answer why he tells Job who is all behind it. And in so doing, what God does is He shows Job and pulls out of his heart that the humble worship of God by His creatures is the ultimate end of redemption. It is the product of why Christ died, and it is the statement to all of the universe that yes, God is so worthy that He can be worshipped even without answers and without gifts. Yes, He is that worthy, and all of the creation should declare that for all eternity. And that's what Job is about. It's about canned creatures who are removed from gifts and removed from answers still worship God. Is he that worthy? And the answer from Job is unequivocally yes. Yes, he is. That's what Sarah Edwards found. That's what George Mueller embraced. And that's what we must as well. That suffering... Men and women calls us to humble ourselves before God, believing, staking our life on, praying into, and clinging to the fact that intimacy with Him is more valuable than an easy life. That we would say, I don't understand why, and you don't even have to tell me. I don't even need to know. All I need to know is what you are like because you are enough. You are worthy. You are sufficient. You are sovereign. You are my king. You are my Lord. You are God and I am not. And therefore, I choose to bless you. Because you are my king. You are my God. And I'm here to simply worship you. Oh, may that be the things that come out of our lips when suffering comes, that you would choose to say, God, I choose to bless.